check. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. This is your host, Dr. Waith, and I have on here today with me Dr. Timothy Ungst, and I'm really excited to get into what we're going to talk to you guys about today. Um, it's going to be focused around the digital healthcare, digital pharmacy realm of things, and um, I'd like to give a very kind welcome uh, to Timothy. Welcome to the show. Hey, no, I appreciate having me on. I mean, you know, we'll go on first name, so... Do you like Richard or Rich? Uh, Richard's fine. Richard. So, I mean, Richard, we connected over LinkedIn. I, you know, I've been posting a lot of stuff lately, and I think that's kind of how we got this conversation started. And I'm really excited to be here today just to talk about, you know, my passion with digital health and technology, especially in the pharmacy space. Yeah, uh, I'm, and I'm happy to, to have you on here. And um, we, we definitely, which is, is becoming the theme of a lot of the connections I've been making um, has really been, which is funny, you know, the theme is around digital, but it's really been on social media and, you know, all the different digital platforms that are out there. So um, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting time. You know, it's just so easy to kind of connect with everyone. And, um, and I think it's great because I'm hearing a lot of people that are in school now, they're not getting a lot of information and they're not getting uh, exposure to a lot of actually what's happening out there. So um, I do appreciate these platforms to be able to do that for them. But before we get into all that, um, let's just do a little background. Uh, kind of tell us about yourself, kind of where you're from, you know, what you're up to now, um, kind of maybe how you got here. Sure. I mean, um, my background is I'm a pharmacist that is in academia. I uh, graduated back in 2011 from Wilkes University. And at that time, um, I really did not know what I wanted to do. I actually thought I was going to go for a pharmacology degree and go for a doctorate. And I remember being in a lab at two o'clock in the morning, watching all my soul cultures die and telling myself, I can't do this shit. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, okay, I had a long, hard talk with some of my professors. I said, you should probably go clinical. And even that was kind of odd. So, I mean, I ended up going and doing a PGY-1 residency at St. Louis University Hospital outside Philadelphia. And then I did a clinical geriatric fellowship up in um, Massachusetts, and I stayed at the institution as a professor. And I mean, that's a, that's kind of the key thing is, um, you know, I'd say this training, and none of it was technology focused. Um, probably the most innovative thing I did as a resident was I was actually using my iPad to process orders when I was rounding the teams and such. And people at that time, back in 2011, 2012, thought that was really interesting. And at mm -hmm. this point in time, like we've moved on so much further. But in any event, um, I, around the time I was a resident, actually started reviewing mobile apps, and then I actually got tied with a company called iMedical Apps, and I got signed on as an editor there, and I started doing freelance writing for different companies on different technological stuff and attending conferences and meetings, and back then, the big thing was the terminology for all this stuff was being called mobile health, or mHealth for short. Mm -hmm. That was actually the biggest term that was being used, and a lot of my early publications are mobile health or mHealth tagged. But it was only about three to four years ago you saw a huge shift um, to digital health. And that was interesting because I was actually on um, Google Trends and looking at this, and you could actually see this huge divergence uh, spread that happened. So that really, I think, came down because the FDA and other organizations started coming in and saying, how do we categorize all this technology coming out? 
But in any event, so I've been doing an, I've been doing a lot of editorial work, a lot of speaking um, for Pharmacy Times and different organizations on technology. I spent a lot of my time um, talking a lot to different startups and people and different companies about what they're trying to do in the pharmacy space and with technology. And probably the biggest fascinating thing right now is the fact that pharma itself is really getting on board with a lot of this stuff. You have companies like Novartis that's um, teaming up with pair therapeutics and a bunch of others. And it's just like, we're in this fascinating age. And a lot of it, I think, does actually impact pharmacy. And that's probably where I'm trying to stand right now, trying to figure out how do we get the stuff to teach students about, how do we teach just to current practitioners so that we really, in short, don't get caught with our pants down when all this technology comes out and our patients are using it. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, you know, you mentioned a couple of things that, you know, one that stuck out to me was that, you know, your, a lot of your training wasn't a lot of your training was not around, um, you know, digital therapeutics. It wasn't around kind of, uh, you know, all the technologies that's going on now, but it's just something that you kind of recognize was going to be a pattern. And you started to kind of dive into it, which I think was interesting because, a lot of people, they have no idea what they want to do with their careers. They don't know where it's going to go. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's not, it seems like you had a really open mind as to what was going to have a large impact on healthcare, and you just kind of dove into it. So um, I think that was pretty interesting. And, um, you know, off the bat, you, you mentioned a, a fairly innovative company, um, which was uh, Pair Technologies and, and, and Digital Therapeutics. And I don't think we've actually mentioned digital therapeutics on the podcast. So, I mean, I think this actually might be a, a good introduction to that if you want to maybe start off kind of by telling us a little bit about what that is and maybe what Pear might be doing. Yeah, I mean, so this is the era that we're at right now is pharma is saying, think beyond the pill. That's a, that's a mantra right now is think beyond the pill because drugs themselves aren't going to be selling everything. You have companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, and they you know, you are the product for these companies. It's data acquisition and data management and how do you use that? And this is the era we're entering in the data analytics, AI, machine learning. How do you parse through all this data and use it? And pharma has had their eye on this because in their minds, how can I use this to monitor people to see if I can roll them in clinical trials? So you have like 23andMe. People have signed up for this thing a lot. I mean, if you were using 23andMe, they're collecting your data. And Pfizer is now buying that data so they can identify patients that they could potentially use in clinical studies coming up. I mean, that, that's all about scalability. And how do you scale up health is a big thing. So digital therapeutics is the idea of some kind of technology platform. It may or may not be integrated with another piece of hardware that allows you to basically lead to some kind of clinical outcome. So, you know, we have a drug. You take lisinopril for possibly hypertension. You could take it for renal protection. You take it for heart failure, but the evidence is there saying this is why you take it. So if I say I had this app and you use this app and it will help you be less depressed or you use this app, it will help you be uh, combat substance disorder. And you can prove that at least the outcome. Now you have something that can be built. Now you have something that insurance can cover. And now you have a product that, what do we call it? It's not a drug. And that's what we now call it digital therapeutics. So in pharmacy, we have pharmacotherapeutics, right? So pharmacy, drugs, therapy. So now it's just digital technology that leads to a therapeutic endpoint. And this is an era that I think is going to be really interesting because right now you see pharma that's trying to find these digital therapeutic companies that tie in with their product line. So maybe it's substance, maybe it's uh, diabetes. You have Roche who is uh, acquiring a lot of different companies. You have Eli Lilly 
and you have Novo Nordisk that's acquiring a lot of uh, products and things in the diabetes space. But that makes sense. I mean, you know, Novo and Eli make insulin, so why not have digital therapeutics of what say this is how you would dose your insulin? This would actually help you with your weight monitoring. And that's kind of like what the key thing is here to basically help out with this care is it allows you to basically get to an error beyond just a medication that people have been dispensing. You could have a prescription written by a provider that is for an app. And this is this is actually the niche. This is the hard part right now. Why I'm very passionate about it and really concerned though is the language that goes before the FDA right now saying this is a digital therapeutic. Who can prescribe it? Does it have to be a physician? Does it have to be a nurse? Can a pharmacist prescribe an app? And that's actually something that has not been figured out yet. And I am trying my best to figure out who we need to talk to, who we need to work with. There's um, a person I love. Her name is Megan Coder. She was the Digital Therapies Alliance. Um, and she is a pharmacist. She was previous with APHA. And I think she's leading a big charge on this. Uh, I really respect her work. Um, but I think it's um, having pharmacists say, we need to be involved in this game. We can't just always be on pills. So if pharma has a whole mantra, you know, think beyond the pill. Pharmacy needs to have another mantra, think beyond the pill at the end of the day. is how do we get to integrate this technology for patient care and how can we play a role in this? Yeah. So that is like the rundown of digital therapies as it currently stands right now. This is still an area that's slowly maturing. It's only been around for probably the past four to five years. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I feel like when I first heard the term digital therapeutics, I first thought, okay, you know, something like a Proteus where it, you know, still a pill being taken just kind of with some sort of digital, um, you know, um, adherence factor in play. And it was really a paradigm shift for me when they was like, no, it's literally just a software. It's just, you know, a patient interacting with an app. Um, I think what, what is becomes interesting though, is the need for it to be prescribed. And, you know, a lot of times we think about the prescription with, with drugs is because it's dangerous and because it's harmful and because, you know, people can be using it for all types of reasons that it's not intended to be. Um, and I'm wondering why is it that they feel that this digital therapeutic software falls into that same category that it needs to be prescribed? Is that something that um, you've ever kind of thought about or? Yes. I mean, and I think that's why it's, a, I, I, I don't know if it's, I would say it's lower stakes, but the monitoring is probably the key thing. But as we talk about one of the biggest push right now is, um, interoperability. So the ability for technology and information to be parsed across different organizations is key. I think that really cuts down in terms of, you know, responsibility because everyone can see the data. And I would argue that old mentality in terms of the fact that you had standalone silos of care. And let's be honest, at that time, pharmacists were not really well-centered for it. But I would argue at this time period, we're getting better in terms of accessing data to do better monitoring. I think has helped us a lot. And I think that's where technology is one of the biggest players. Now, coming back to what you said about Proteus, I actually don't qualify Proteus as a digital therapeutic company. I actually um, would categorize them as what's going to be a digital medicine. And the reason I say that is because um, it's, a, it's a platform to help monitor adherence and track adherence that is then used by clinicians for that. And you had different companies that are coming to market with similar digital medicines, I would argue. Um, maybe not as great, but um, in terms of definitely making sure someone took it, but like take out Novo and Eli, they're trying to make smart insulin pens. So every time you inject, you can track, you know, whether or not they're actually taking their insulin. And then you also have companies that are making sensors that go on top of a um, inhaler. Those I think with digital therapeutics, what's going to be the difference is what's the difference between an inhaler with a 
attachable sensor that is really all about the data versus a inhaler with a built-in sensor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a built-in thing that's really going to make these things stand apart as digital medicines because that's really what they are. They're digitally um, sensor-enabled medication versus a device that gets slapped on adjunctively to collect data. Um, but I think this is still an area that's being defined. And that and that's actually the biggest thing. I, I swear the hardest part for the past decade is all of these different terms that get thrown around. It's mHealth, mobile health, digital health, digital therapeutics, wearables. It's just all over the place. And I do think that they all like overlap a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think it's cool, too, to see where, uh, where Proteus is currently at because their patch that you need to wear uh, with that, you know, with taking that pill, it's so large and it's so intru- like intrusive almost. And I feel like it's just, you know, they just started. It's going to be interesting to see how where, you know, the technology might go as to where, you know, down the line, your watch might even might be able to pick that up instead of having to wear like this, uh, this crazy patch on there. So I think that's pretty interesting. But kind of keeping on the adherence, um, the adherence piece, we had connected also recently on I, th- I think this was a kind of the post that kind of led to this podcast, actually, which was the uh, that recording, I forgot the name of the company now that the company that is, uh, they want you to record a video of yourself taking the pr- taking the medication to kind of prove uh, the adherence uh, to the plans, possibly. Um, and, and the reason I want to bring this up is it, it seems like, you know, it's very big brother like it seems like people will say it's going too far. People will say this is exactly what we need, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Maybe, you know, explain a little bit better if I did not. Um, and, and kind of just let, let the, let the listeners know kind of what it is that we're talking about here. I mean, um, so you have uh, directly observed therapy and idea that you have a patient come in front of you and they take the medication in front of you and they swallow it and then you document they took it. Um, this has been used a lot for like public health services for like tuberculosis where you go into a clinic and the nurse watches you swallow the medication and make sure you take it. And it's used a lot of the time for high six medication. So in this case, anti-effectives. It's also used for psych. Um, I work at a home health care agency, for instance, uh, as a clinical site. And we have nurses that travel around to make sure people take basically they're atypical antipsychotics because they have schizophrenia. So, and if you think about that, so this is called DOT, directly observed therapy. It's, it's a large amount of money. That's a lot of overhead that you're paying for a person just to watch them take their medication. The best form of adherence is probably DOT because the patient has someone that is giving them the medication, can track that they took the medication, and is pushing them to take their medication. But that's basically like being in a hospital and you're paying a nurse or some other healthcare professional to do this. And if you think about it, that's probably not the best use of their time. And you're paying a lot of money just for that time. So how do we, you know, make it cheaper? So you have something called VDOT, or virtually uh, directly observed therapy. And it's the whole idea. I mean, this stuff's been around for, a, you know, like right now, um, as we're recording this, we're on Zoom and we can see each other. So you could hypothetically be there and just take your medications. I could watch you take your medication. I can't verify that you swallowed but I can at least see that you took it. So you have companies like AI Cure, Emoka Mobile Health, uh, Shira here, um, that have come to market with these programs that work off a smartphone. And so the patient would shine the camera on their face as they took the medication, and they're going to verify the person took it. Now, they all use different technology. AI Cure says they use some kind of artificial intelligence 
to make sure that you swallow the medication. A lot of it's proprietary. A lot of them have some small studies for it. They probably the most small studies. But Emoka and Shurit here have different methods, and like they'll take a video, and a nurse or someone still has to sit there and go through and make sure the person swallowed it. But that means now this is easier for the patient. Logistically, they don't have to travel out to a clinic, and you can probably just watch the videos way quicker instead of scheduling someone to come in and out. So now on to the second part of your question. So is this big brother? Well, I mean, if we go with the concept that we already had DOT as being established service, um, and then we go with V dot, I mean, what's the difference going through your phone? I guess you your real challenge there is how is this data being collected and utilized? And that's the big thing. What I would say is if you are already doing online banking, if you already do pay your friends through an app, if you're already on social media at this point in time with Big Brother, I think you kind of already are in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the difference with your health? Uh, what is the stigma with your health that separates it? And I think this is something that's going to be a generational gap. I think you're going to have older patients that don't like this. I think younger people may be more inclined to accept it. I mean, we already see a large amount of people sharing their health history online through social platforms. Um, one of the best cases I've seen with that is actually the FDA is curious, can we actually data mine social media to identify new drug-related events? So can you go through Facebook or Twitter and say, oh, wow, this person's complaining they're having bleeding or something on this drug. We've never seen that. Maybe we should report it. Maybe we should look into it. So is that big brother? Is that, is that safety? People are already doing it. I mean, it's, it's definitely a big ethical dilemma, I would say. Um, hardest part for me, though, is I would say that a lot of this stuff is inevitable. I honestly see the future of our daily living going to be a smart home. I can see a person getting up in the morning going to the bathroom and your toilet will read whatever came out of you and say, ah, you know, you're low on this, you're high on this, your hormones are blah, blah, blah. You got to scale your way yourself to see this. And then you basically say, you are supposed to take this, this stuff today. Uh, maybe there's a 3D printer in your house and it prints out a patch that you put on that says, here's your pick-me-up for the day, or here's a stimulant, or here's something else, or what have you. Yeah. And this comes from different sci-fi that I love reading. And I think that's the one thing that really has led me to a lot of stuff is science fiction writers for years have been calling for a lot of stuff. And it's just slowly we're getting there. Yeah. I, I, that's something I find fascinating. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, a lot of times we also start to think about the privacy of it and um, and whether it being Big Brother-like. And I think over time, as, as we're also seeing the, the advent of Alexa into everyone's homes is, we're starting to realize that you know we're we're willing to give up more and more privacy in the in the convenience and in the benefits that you know some of these devices and some of these things provide to us. So I think you know we might be seeing that as well, um, in, with the advent of some of these new um, with some of these new technologies. So did you see that? Um, basically, Google Home is um, basically keeping all the recordings you've ever had with it and doesn't delete them. That's crazy. I did not see that. Yeah, if you look at it, I think The Verge just had an article about this recently. Um, oh, my God. So like, there's different things like that. So, like, people, if you've already invited Amazon, Google, or anyone else into your home, they're in your home. Um, yeah. And, that's, and there was a recent patent that actually Amazon filed. I wrote about this about two months ago. It, the whole patent is very short, but there was one telling image. It shows a patient walk into their home. I call them a patient, but it's just a person walks into their home. Mm-hmm. And she starts coughing. And Amazon's like, and Alexa's like, are you okay? Uh, I know you have a cough. Would you like me to deliver cough drops to you in one hour? 
<laughs> that's crazy. And he's picking up from a cop. And that's telling because, you know, oh, maybe Amazon will be like, oh, you've been having sniffles. I hear you blowing your nose. Maybe you need some chicken noodle soup. Let's have Grubhub deliver something to you. And you know what? Um, let's say that Amazon buys a teleservice, you know, on demand, like Lemonade Health or whatever mm. you have. And let's set up a teleconsult with a doctor now. And we'll do that. And then we'll have pill pack or whatever else we have deliver a drug to you by the end of the day if it's if you need it because you're sick. Yeah. I mean, that's, and you know, you can do different things like, you know, Google flu trends can track when flu's clearing up and Amazon can collect that data and say, oh, this person seems like they're displaying symptoms that may be the cold or, or the flu. You can at least help direct them. So this is, so this is actually where I see a lot of things going. Um, that kind of stuff, I think, is highly feasible within the next few years. Um, and I think we're going to hear a lot of talk about that. And I can see that being sold as basically, you know, your health on demand kind of stuff. So coming back, you know, I like this conversation, Big Brother, because there's one thing that has caught my attention, especially working in home health care, is the question I throw to a lot of people is how do you want to die? And that's a question I really think a lot of people really need to reflect on at some point in their lives because, you know, I've done home hospice. I've seen um, also people die in hospice units, dying in a hospital. Most people don't want to die away from home. Most people envision dying, you know, and staying in home as long as possible. It's hopefully surrounded by family or loved ones. But it's not easy staying at home. Let's be quite honest. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a lot of monitoring. It's going to be a lot of services you need. People need to come in to see you and take care of you. This is actually where I think a lot of this technology comes into play. People are going to pay good money for any services or tools they can use that will help them stay at home as long as possible. And that's where I actually see a lot of this technology going. So, you know, we talk about these home voice assistants, but, you know, people don't want to go to a doctor's office. People don't want to wait in line. Why do people want to go to a hospital unless they're going to, you know, if it's life or death and they want to prevent that? So any technology you can throw in the home environment that can do these things, that's how it's going to be sold. And that, I think, is what's going to have people buy them. And where I see it is you're going to see a lot of Generation X and Millennials when their parents start getting older, they're going to buy this technology also for their parents for that reason. They're going to say, oh, I just saw this ad or I saw this service that can do X, Y, and Z, and this will help you. You know, they're the same kind of generation that got uh, their parents onto, you know, these wearables for Christmas presents to yeah. help them stay healthy. So why not say, ah, this thing will help you as well? I think that's going to be the business approach that we're going to see. And I do think at this time we're seeing some slow movements that way. Uh, Best Buy, for example, just acquired Great Call. Great Call sold, um, you know, sells products to older people for, you know, how to, you know, for phones, for like emergency alert systems and such. Well, why would why would Best Buy do that? Well, Best Buy has also been moving the whole business model to setting up homes for different stuff, like coming to your house, setting up your TV, your sound system and such. So what's to stop them from, you know, going full bore on a smart home model and saying, we will come to your parents' home and set up all the safety equipment. You know, you will know when your when your grandmother, or your mother falls down, they can't get help. Yeah. You will know these things, and we will make sure they have all this all the security stuff that's put in place, or things that make their lives easier that can help them. That's I think that is going to be the the big thing in digital health here shortly. Yeah. So let's pivot into uh, pharmacy 2.0. So uh, you recently sent me a uh, an article kind of detailing out which you know we've talked about the coming on you know in previous episodes and the coming of automation 
and kind of how that's going to disrupt kind of the day-to-day workflow of the pharmacist um, and, a, and a pharmacy. But let's you did a really good job at kind of drawing it all out. You had like a diagram on there, and I'm going to link this into the show notes um, as well to make sure that people have access to it. Um, you know, and then we'll, we'll get into your website and things like that later, but, um, kind of tell us about your vision of kind of what the, like the pharmacy 2.0, or maybe, you know, what's really sticking out beyond just, you know, kind of having automation in the, in the workflow. All right. So people talk about automation a lot and I, I find this very interesting. So, I mean, Richard, your, your, your thoughts on this as well, I think I would, I would enjoy is why do we need pharmacists at the end of the day? Um, and you know, we, we were chemists, druggists, we were apothecaries, and we became pharmacists in about the 1970s. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you need a pharmacist to verify a prescription. Um, there's a lot of states that are moving towards tech, check, tech. Um, they don't even have to look at the drugs when they leave the pharmacy. Uh, there can be virtual uh, verification of the drug process for the compounding and such. I think my biggest concern right now is we actually stand on the razor's edge of how the pharmacy profession goes forward. On one hand, you can go a full-on automated model where you could probably slam a bunch of pharmacists remotely just to verify prescriptions, and you can have automation and text and maybe a few pharmacists on site that just processes the drugs and get them out of the door and make sure all the inventory and such is still fine. And then you can have like, you know, some urgent pharmacy areas because people always need antibiotics and other things made that they have to go to. They don't want to wait a day for it to be mailed. That's one possible outcome I could see. And let me put it this way. I think it would be the dystopian model for pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And there's the other one, which you're talking about, I sent you is I see a return to more of a personalized pharmacy uh, kind of service that uses a lot of this technology for patient care. And there was a recent interview with one of the digital officers at Aetna. So as you probably all know, Aetna and CVS are going to have this combination here soon, and it's going to be a completely siloed approach where you have mail order, you have pharmacy, you have PBM, and you have a payer all rolled into one silo. So whatever patient ends up in there um, is most likely going to be stuck in that care. Yeah, I'm really curious because in an interview, um, the person was talking about using the pharmacy as a touch base to get to see patients in a different way. And this comes back to the whole talk about AI data analytics and wearables. So if you can have a patient and they're having some kind of illness or some kind of sickness, and let's suppose you offer them a teleservice and it doesn't work, then you can scale them up to go see a person and the person can see them and then figure out from there. So it's not like small little touch points. It's like a, it's like a escalation phase or a tier approach of care. Um, with the pharmacy, it looks like being like one of the big uh, cornerstones for a lot of primary care outcomes. The, what I really come back to, what I talked about earlier, is where did the pharmacists come into play for these digital therapeutics? And can we have a role in it? So the diagram essentially has a large amount of pharmacists involved with basically digital health, because I see that as a low clinical stake area that pharmacists can still have a large, meaningful amount of care that they can give. And there's different things coming out that even we could bill for. So how do we take MTM to the next level, for instance? How can we use pharmacogenomics? I mean, 23andMe is going to start selling, um, giving reports to patients that use their service to see, you know, what drugs they should or should not take and to discuss that with the provider. Is that us as pharmacists or is that their doctor or nurse? Mm-hmm. That's something that I think we need to uh, go for. But then also with that is 
we have other movements for what's called remote patient monitoring. So if you go back to Proteus, if a person is on Proteus, can the pharmacist make sure they're taking the medication? If they're not, can they then counsel them about how to be more adherent and then bill for that service? So how do we get this pharmacy to engage in these kind of tools and be that touch point for it? I think is really key. And I think from an educational standpoint, we're not ready for that because it's also a tech angle that no school has in their curriculum as well. And I think that we need to get more up to speed on it. And there's a lot of different topics, like how do you do data analytics? How do you handle that stuff? What does this stuff out there even mean? Um, and that's really, I think, is the, the hard part because it's a lot of self-growth for us as a profession. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that popped up and you kind of alluded to it is like, how do we really, like in your view, how do we establish ourselves as the, you know, as the profession that is responsible for having that discussion with the patient about, um, you know, 23andMe results? Like, I, I mean, how do we get there? I, the only thing I could really think of the easiest way is to someone create a, a brand around it and then just start, you know, getting dollars to spend on, on, you know, Facebook marketing, let's just say, or, or a commercial or something to say, hey, when you get these results, like your pharmacist is the best person to talk to. Like how, how else would you think that we should really establish ourselves in, in being that profession to be the ones that they go to? Um, two things. One is to make pharmacists more aware of this stuff that even exists. I don't think a lot of us are because we don't actually, a lot of our news or media for pharmacists really tackle all this technology. The American Medical Association is going full bore. They just published this huge thing. They have working groups, they have networks all about digital health. And, you know, that's AMA and they represent most of the medical profession. Versus pharmacy, we have so many different groups and organizations, but not really one of them has taken up this as a charge. So I think professionally, there needs to be something there in terms of having us uh, as ASHP, as APHA, as NACDS, as it, you know, who, whoever comes up and say, we need to start defining what this means for pharmacists. We need to then lobby for being able to say, hey, FDA, if you're going to be saying a provider can prescribe this, make sure the provider is also defined as a pharmacist. So yeah. we need a larger speaking group for us. I don't think a grassroots movement in terms of pharmacists themselves trying to make small companies or consultant organizations for this will basically, they may make a road for themselves regionally, but it'll be temporal because long-term what will happen is all the other big tech companies will come in and supplant them. And that'd be the thing. Unless, of course, that company's goal was to exit to one of those companies and make it big, then whatever, that's on them. But um, I would say that's probably one of the shortcomings is pharmacists for us, we're very, we are very entrepreneur-minded, I do believe. The problem is we are also a very disparate um, profession that does not know how to really bind together over some of these issues. I do admire what we did with called naloxone uh, vaccinations you know, we could get ourselves out there and do it, but this is a big jump because it's not tied to a direct uh, physical product that most pharmacists really think about on a day-to-day basis. So I do think it's a cultural shift for us overall. Yeah. Yeah, I think the separation between dispensing and uh, uh, dispensing prescriptions and providing services around medication use or um you know, really just around medication use and just overall well-being. I think there needs to be, or and there will be a separation of the two um, with a lot of the things that are coming out now and, and kind of looking at your diagram of the pharmacy 2.0. I mean, I think that that also allows for a lot of the, the pharmacists not, not being too concerned about the dispensing process, more so about the um, medication use aspect of things. So um, anything else around that pharmacy 2.0? 
you wanted to point out um, that might stick out to people that might not be looking at it? You know, um, I think there's also things that we need to improve in like our workflow in terms of like how do we use apps even or different uh, educational things. Like, you know, you have people waiting 15 minutes for a drug to be prepared. What's to stop you from having a tablet that can be put on the floor that can provide information about that drug they're about to be dispensed? Why can't you have a payer then that say, if you do this quiz or this thing, we will reimburse you for it. And if they fail it or they're not passing it to an extent, then the pharmacist can intervene and say, hey, let's go over this and see what you're getting wrong. Mm-hmm. That could be as simple. If the case thing would be like, you know, let's go with levothyroxine. Okay, you just got diagnosed, you know, you know, hypothyroidism. You're going to start levothyroxine. Here's the new prescription. Your insurance company says, play with this app for the next five minutes while you wait for this drug to be prepared and do this quiz. You can watch a video, an education thing, and just know the rundown. Like, oh, take out an empty stomach. Take it in the morning. Avoid X, Y, Z. And if they pass the quiz, great. If they don't, then the pharmacist can, should be counseling them even further on it. And I, that, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for, for scalability. How can you use this technology to get us to a point beyond what we're currently able to? Because I will admit, I mean, pharmacists are overworked in the, in the pharmacy. We're, we are, I, I, would, I would say... I love this technology, but I am the first to say I don't want to slam more work on a pharmacist that currently operates with things that would be meaningless. So let's use technology to basically triage who needs more further touch points on a human nature before we just try to do everyone at once. And I think that's where a lot of stuff goes wrong is we try to basically give a Band-Aid and try tackling everyone with the same kind of intervention when they don't need it. Adherence is a great example. We talked to everyone about adherence, but some people are more adherent than others. How do we find out about the people who are not adherent and spend more time on them to get to the outcomes we need versus talking to someone and we know that they are actually taking their drugs and it's a meaningless conversation at the end of the day. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. I, I really like your idea about the kind of the watching of an app uh, or, or, or engaging with an app before picking up their medication. I mean, I could even see it going as far as being a part of the prioritization process. Where oh, yeah. the plan you won't do even possible for post discharge and yeah. all that medication reconciliation. There's a lot of things we can do, and I think this is one area that I think that we've been slacking out. So why can't pharmacists develop this? Why can't pharmacists roll it out? This is in this is in our field. This is where we should be really pushing for this stuff, and we're not. Yeah. And that's where I come back to is we need more pharmacists as developers, more pharmacists speak out, say, hey, look at this workflow. This needs to be fixed. This could come in. If we have to do limited studies, let's do it. But I think there's a lot there to grab for us right now. Mm-hmm. So I think I, we heard a lot about kind of what you're excited about and, and kind of what you're paying attention to. But um, I wanted to see what is it that you think that we're seeing now being developed or being talked about a lot that is like a fad or is probably likely not going to work long term or um, something that you just, you know, just don't really see being as effective as as people are portraying it to be. In relevant to the pharmacy space, I take it. Yeah, in pharmacy space, um, it, or it could be just anything in healthcare, maybe. Um, you know, whatever just kind of comes to mind, even if it's like a, an app or a device or or whatever the case may be. I think it's mm, the turnover in hardware is my biggest concern, and what I mean by that is when we make devices or things that may only temporarily be a solution until something further develops. So, you know, let's take, uh, for instance, a sensor that you put on a medication or inhaler or insulin or whatever else or something that you add on the therapy. If the innate device or innate platform from pharma changes, it makes it meaningless. Good example, your iPhone. 
you used to be able to attach headphones to it. And then iPhone took away the jack and now you can't plug it in. And a lot of consumers were angry about that. <laughs> and you know what? That meant a lot of companies now have to go to a whole Bluetooth model. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's taking into account development of this drug pipeline and how this stuff is going to change. So that's one thing is my big concern is, and this is why I think really matters is a lot of companies may want to say, well, let's invest in using this kind of technology. But the catch is, what is the longevity of that technology you're going to be doing? If you're going to invest a lot of money and it gets outdated within two or three years, I'm sure that's not going to make a lot of people happy. Um, and also the big issue is clinical research. We want evidence-based medicine. That's always been a big push. I think the changing dynamic for evidence in this area is going to be hard because technology moves so fast. If it takes you two to three years just to so, show results that your platform for adherence can improve, but by that point, someone else comes with the technology that's way better or the platform is using hardware that got outdated, then that study is meaningless. Yeah. So I think we need to reevaluate how we do current evidence. And I think that's something that is very... Um, very against current pharmacy thinking. That is honest. super. It's funny that you mentioned that. I'm actually working on a. I'm, I'm actually looking at some stuff now because I'm trying to look at. Uh, so my company does medication education videos, and we're trying to look at what has been already studied around. Uh, you know, use of uh, education materials, just so we don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of figuring out that there's proof that this actually. Um, does help with adherence. It does prevent readmissions. It does help with health literacy. And it's funny because I was kind of looking at that. So, and it's funny that you mentioned this. So at what point do we start to say, well, if we extrapolate and look at the events that happen in this study and we just have it being done much more effectively with much better technology in a much more efficient manner, why can't we extrapolate those results to show that this actually in truth would be effective and not have to kind of reinvent that wheel and then be behind three years to see the results. And I think you're hitting the big hard part with this because I've had different debates with different people about this. A lot of people say, no, it has to be that intervention X has to show it versus yes, we can extrapolate. One of the people I think in one of the areas that need to be incorporated in all this stuff though, is when we talk about technology and digital health, a lot of people want to say, you know, it's a medical thing. It's not actually only a medical thing. It's a, social and behavioral science as well. You're using technology to make a behavior change. There's a lot of research out there on that stuff and you can use a lot of it. And I think a lot of medical professionals, especially when they're talking about their own products and such, aren't bringing those people into the, into the game or aren't looking at the literature they have published because they've done a lot of stuff that I think could be extrapolated out into, you know, in your case, you could probably take a look and say, has there been any use cases that they established of what's best practices for making sure that someone watching a video retains that information? Mm-hmm. And that would probably maybe be the best is XYZ has shown that if you do this, 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 that you can extrapolate that they will remember something better or more long-term. And that's already been a social study that's been done yeah. versus trying to think like a normal thing like, well, someone did this thing and it led to this outcome with this process. I think that's really the big uh, divide right now um, you know, overall in, in attacking the literature and tackling, you know, what is the underlying science that's, uh, that's usable. And I, I won't lie, uh, the digital health space for, dig- for um, evidence has been reading these studies, you see there's such a huge collide between what is the exact science that's supposed to be used because it is all over the place right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's hard to deal with. I mean, and then you also think about the, uh, so I was at the PQA summit uh, a couple weeks ago, and one of the larger themes around that was the social determinants of health and um, just kind of seeing how, depending on your environment, your education, um, all these different factors that could come into play as to whether one of these things may work or not. And then, you know, you're looking at trying to do studies on someone, but your population group was, you know, Hispanic males in South Florida, you know, it, it, it worked really great or it didn't. How is that going to apply now to the, you know, white males in the Northeast, let's say? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's so intricate and it's so complicated around with all these different environments that people are in and how you cannot treat them differently and you can't expect the same results in these different groups of people. Yet, you know, we're, we, are, we are so tied to the results of some of these things before we decide to say that, yeah, this works and we're going to try it and implement it here versus whether or, or not. Yeah, even social determinants, I think, would be interesting because I could, you know what, I'm still in debt from, you know, my education. Yeah, I, I aren't, aren't we all, man, preach. <laughs> so, you know what, as, my, as I watch my debt go down, my mood gets better. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know any study that has like my debt tracker there and say, wow, he went down like a few thousand that month. And, you know, suddenly he's, he's like, you know, walking down the street, dancing all along. What's yeah. going on there? Yeah. Or maybe my bank account. Oh, wow. He's got, he's got a little boost this month and he's doing a little bit better. <laughs> you know, no one's doing that. But I mean, like, what if we ever reach that point where you can tie in all this stuff together and put all this data and somehow be able to read it? I think that will be very key. I think the old mechanism of collecting patient data and outcomes and just, any, you know, confounder date that, that goes with it. I think we're, we're really entering an age where that's where I look at a lot of tech companies. They're on it. They know that you, it's, it's your search history. It's your browsing history. It's your, you know, how long you even on your phone for the day versus what time of night you're going at, what material they're they're They understand the social determinants. They have always uh, behavioral scientists on board that do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Facebook played, you know, in the past with trying to put more depressing information or happier information on um, your webpage to see if it made you happier or sadder. And they knew they could nudge it one way or another. So yeah, it's all that stuff to consider. And I think it's that kind of side that we have to remember that is key, you know, in health. It's not just drug X leads to this and everyone's better. No, it's, there's a lot of other things that go on behind the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff to, to unpack here. And I think this was, uh, I think your, your take on a lot of these issues is something that I really hope people will continue to follow and pay attention to and 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 kind of with that like tell let's talk about your podcast what what is your podcast uh call what is it going to be themed around how can people find it um so that way they can kind of tune into kind of your thoughts and, and follow along with with uh your takes on on the industry yeah so i'm with the pharmacy podcast network um it's under future dose or futuredose.tech and basically i am just I will have some people on, but um, what it turns into is just talking either with companies that are about different products. So I'm actually hoping to get someone from Proteus, for instance, to talk about their product here shortly, mm -hmm. um, and a few other digital health companies, and then also just talking about different stuff that's come out. If you want, you go look, and I've had a few episodes up about how's the uh, Apple Watch coming to play. I actually go into a big depth about if you thought that Amazon Alexa for Health was interesting, I have a whole episode on that, for instance, mm -hmm. and what that might mean for pharmacy. So I have all this kind of stuff that's coming out. It's very digital health focused. So come and give it a listen if you're very curious. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well, so people can, uh, so people can check that out as well. I actually um, I was at uh, NASP uh, about a month or so back, and 
I met with someone at Proteus there as well, and I have someone on the calendar as well to try to talk about that. So, um, so people, you guys are going to get a double, like two different types of information to listen to about Proteus. So, um, I think the world is going to be, or at least the, our listeners are going to be fairly keen as to what's going on with the, kind of that, that movement that they're doing with adherence and, and putting, you know, digital technologies into our capsules and things like that. So it's going to be interesting. So, um, again, I'll put that, I'll put the information to your podcast inside the show notes for anyone that's interested in, um, your website's amazing. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about that too as well. Like when I, I, I checked it out the other day and I was just like, holy crap, this is so cool. He's going to, he has like all the digital companies kind of, not all of them obviously. And, and it, it's a work in progress, but you know, so far the progress is amazing, but you know, you have a lot of the companies that are doing these digital advancements in pharmacy and technology kind of categorized into, you know, into an easy place to find it, I think is super interesting. And um, so what, what's your website and kind of what was like the motivation and, and why are you kind of uh, doing that kind of stuff? So it's a digitalapothecary.com, um, which was funny because I didn't even notice at the time that my full name is Timothy B. Youngst. Yeah. And someone said, wow, you did the same, you know, initials. And I was like, oh, I didn't even catch that when I did it. <laughs> a lot of people are like, you're very digital, but you're also old fashioned. I, I, I still keep a lot of journals. I still write with fountain pens. I love history. So I combine the two things. I love visual and you know history together for this name, the digital apothecary. Yeah. And it, it actually, I, I just upgraded this year. I, it was more of a portfolio. It was more of a blog. And now I'm trying to do, and trying to, as I talked about before, and trying to make this as an area for pharmacists to come and see what is pharmacy news, uh, what is different stuff coming out that I think is relevant. Um, so I have my podcast, I have articles that I'm coming across in digital health that I kind of give a rundown how it deals with pharmacy. So it's very pharmacy based. Um, some of my recent ones was about 23andMe, uh, directed consumer pharmacogenetic testing, um, Google smart lens for glucose monitoring, um, and then about the CVS Aetna digital strategy. And I'm also doing weekly reports on clinical studies and publications. So if you're a reader, I'm going to be putting out a weekly summary of different articles that you should read in a digital space uh, as well. So that's the kind of things I'm, I'm working on right now. And also I'm going to keep as a kind of a base of information for different health companies, different products. I'm actually working right now on um, digital therapeutics companies. So I'm trying to put that list together. That one's actually bigger than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, but the Medication Adherence companies is pretty much done. You're going to know some blank spaces because I'm waiting for companies to give me their logos to host. Yeah. So there's places because the company hasn't got back to me yet. Um, but otherwise, um, there's a short blurb on them and then link. There's about over 50 companies that found the Medication Adherence space. I actually have 10 more I need to add. So this is going to be a living document that's going to breathe. Mm -hmm. that you can go on to to see who's there. Digital therapies will be broken into therapeutic categories such as pulmonary, cardiology, et cetera. And then I'm also working on what's called virtual pharmacy on-demand prescription companies. I might change this name, but it's basically things like Roman, um, Maven, um, yeah. Nurse, Nurse, like those yeah, com yeah. kind of companies I'm going to start listing because they're becoming more, there's a lot of them popping up now, yeah. is what I'm noticing. So I'm going to be putting those down. So hopefully this will be an information source that you can come visit me and see, hey, I wonder if he has any information out here that he's collected from, you know, what's been out there. I mean, I spent a lot of my time reading peer-reviewed research, white papers, and different stuff like that, and putting it in one central area. You'll find that there's other um, news organizations that write about digital health, but they write about globally, I would say. Um, so I'm trying to make this a pharmacy hub for digital health in terms of news and information. Yeah. 
And again, it's going to be a great resource, guys. So it'll be located in the show notes below um, for anyone that's interested in checking that out. And um, uh, Timothy, anything else that you want to leave the listeners with kind of before we wrap up here? Oh, no, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Yeah, no, this was great. Um, Timothy, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey everyone, first of all, thank you so much uh, for being a listener, for being a subscriber and taking in all the content that we're putting out. And, uh, you know, if you haven't subscribed yet, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on any of your favorite social media platforms, uh, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, we're on all those. And until next time, see you over the counter. Pharmacy.